Welcome to another episode of Axe of the Blood God, US Gamer's official RPG podcast. I'm your host, Cat Bailey. With me, as always, is my humble co-host, Nadia Oxford. Hello, humble as usual. And we have a special guest with us. Our fearless leader emerges from the shadows. It's Jeremy Parrish. Hooray! Hi, I'm not so humble. <laughs> <laughs> and the reason that we have our fearless leader on the pod is because he's going to be talking about Final Fantasy XV. He has been playing a lot of it. Wait, I thought, go... I, was, I thought I was here for free candy. No. <laughs> later, later, maybe. Halloween isn't, doesn't, isn't until Monday, Jeremy, so you're just going to have to wait until then. Damn it. The day after, get it on sale. And watch out for bands. <laughs> but yeah, he's been playing a lot of Final Fantasy XV. There's a big preview of it on the site. Two parts. Oh, there are two two previews and a third one up by the end of the week, I promise. Wow. Very exciting. Uh, he really goes in-depth into the general structure of the game, the battle system. Um, I learned a lot about Final Fantasy XV just by reading it, so you should go check I that out. I learned a lot about Final Fantasy XV by playing it because it's been... <laughs> Square hasn't really been doing a good job of communicating some of their games lately. Like, their demos of Final Fantasy XV have not been that encouraging. Like, that battle against Titan at at E3, Mm -hmm. that looked terrible. But no, the game actually came together really well. Um, I've been playing a... I don't think it's a final build since the game just went gold today. But it is a near final build. And... Uh, like a lot of press outlets, I was given um, basically a five-chapter demo of the game, preview version. I think the game is 15 chapters total, kind of like 13 was 13 chapters. And uh, <laughs> Clever. No, no, I, I'm, I'm pretty sure that's correct. So this would constitute about a third of the game. I've heard it does get more linear in you know later in the game, but it certainly has not been linear so far. I'm... <clears throat> unlike every other outlet that just like played through and got to the end of the fifth chapter um i am still in the second chapter i mean i've been traveling and busy with other things but that's more than 10 hours of gameplay and playtime and i'm still in chapter two chapter two takes place in mostly the same areas as chapter one and I keep coming across places that I didn't go in chapter one, where I, I just like set out to explore and see what was out there and thought I had seen the whole area. But no, there was like an entire region that I totally missed. So it's a pretty big game. Yeah, that sounds really that sounds really exciting because um, between this and, and Zelda Breath of the Wild, like I'm really down with the idea of Japanese <laughs> game developers getting more into the open world scenario, especially uh, Japanese RPG developers. Yeah, this seems to be really in your wheelhouse, Jeremy, because I know how much, like, how excited you get whenever you get a big RPG and it just says, go, go explore, (laughs) have fun. Yeah, something that's really interesting about this one, though, is that it doesn't adhere to a lot of the open world conventions uh, that other developers use. Like, it feels different than other open world games. I mean... It's tempting to compare this to Skyrim, which comes out this week in a remastered version, but it the world is nothing at all like that. Um, it's huge and open, and there's not that much stuff in it. Like, you have to travel for a pretty long way to find stuff. It's not like Skyrim, where you would step out of a cave and, like, rotate your viewpoint and new icons would appear all over the map because there were, like you know, 
10 different caves or villages mm -hmm. within 500 meters of where you appeared. Like this <laughs> game is much more sprawling and spread out. And I'm okay with that. Um, but it's, it, it, it kind of, um, it kind of dares to challenge convention in ways that I think are going to make people complain. Um, it really, <laughs> it doesn't have a lot of fast travel options so far. Um, so you, you do have some fast travel. You can go back to the most recent place you camped out overnight, whether that was a town or like a campground in the middle of the wilderness, or you can warp immediately to your car. But that's it. Those are the only places you can fast travel to. Dude, you can also have you can also have your car towed to where you are at that point. So then you can go driving in it. But don't think this is going to be like Grand Theft Auto, where um, you hop in the car and can drive anywhere. Uh, you can only drive on roads. It's a very polite, sort of orderly, <laughs> law-abiding Japanese take on a, say, an open-world yeah. game. Later on, you no, will no, be able you to must get... obey all traffic laws. Stop at all the red lights. There are no traffic signs on the island, but I mean, I can't even figure out how to drive the car myself. Like at the very beginning, the first time you get in the car, you can choose to have one of your party members, Ignis, uh, drive for you. And I was like, okay, yeah, I don't feel like driving right now, so I'll let him do that, and then I'll switch over to autom or like to manual control later. But I can't figure out how to switch to manual control. <laughs> so, <laughs> so basically, like driving, it's a little weird. Driving is basically just like you hop in the car and tell him your destination, and he'll drive you there. And you can kind of exert some control, like say stop here or do a U-turn or whatever, and change up your route. But it's not like a GTA game where you just drive anywhere and go off road. Like you can't take a minivan off road. You have one car, and that car is it's it's got a name. It's called the Regalia. It's like a really nice vintage car, and that's kind of the the way the game begins. Like you go off on a road trip in the vintage car, and it breaks down because yeah. you're a stupid snot nosed punk <laughs> who doesn't take care of things. And so the game actually begins with you slowly pushing the car down a stretch of desert road. It's like the opposite of Final Fantasy VII's beginning, which was exciting and amazing. Oh, so intense. No, this is nothing like that. It's like some bros pushing their broken down car along the road. But I know later in the game you can you can um, rent chocobos. Yay. And I, I'm, chocobos will take you anywhere you want to go. Also, I don't think it's a spoiler to say this because they've shown it in videos. Uh, at some point, the regalia learns to fly <laughs> so yeah it becomes That's like amazing. a little it's like the fantastic car basically the quinjet i don't know <laughs> uh, it's very comic book but but yeah it, like transforms into a little miniature flying car um so you you'll you'll gain more ability to travel at your own leisure and, and go off road but otherwise you kind of are limited to the roads and if you want to go off and kind of explore on your own it's on foot with your bros and you have to kind of fight your way along although there there's a quote-unquote random encounter system where enemies appear but it's a pretty low encounter system it's not like you're constantly going to be fighting off monsters they they only show up occasionally so there is a lot of just kind of like traveling like running and there are entire areas where monsters don't appear at all uh, and then there are areas where you come across monsters that are way, way over your level and will destroy you if you go up to them. So kind of like the dinosaur outside of um, Robin Astra in, in Final Fantasy XII, except 
that one was actually friendly. If you didn't bother it, it wouldn't mess with you. But if you messed with it, then it was like, okay, level one guy, you're dead. <laughs> so <laughs> there's, there's, there's a little bit of that going on. Yeah. It's uh, it's funny. The um, Your impressions of the opening were very much like mine uh, when I played the first half hour and I wrote them up. Uh, I just thought it was really bold of Square Enix to start off a RPG with you pushing a car, and it really works. Yeah, you know, the whole the the way the 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 play that I've had so far, the play session that I've had so far, has unfolded has really sold me on the concept. Like, I mean, it, the whole game has been kind of promoting, you know, Prince Noctis. Like, he's been part of the game since the beginning. They didn't even know what the game was ten years ago, but they were like, "Here's a trailer, and here's a guy with like a lot of hair and <laughs> flying ghost swords." So then they had to like build a game around that. So the game has become about him and his three companions. So it turns out he's a prince, and the game's opening mission, so to speak, is you traveling to a nearby kingdom to marry the princess to whom you're betrothed to form an alliance between the kingdoms. And basically the uh, the guys you're traveling with are your buddies, but they're also like your royal guard. Right. And the the the, the like the Harajuku um high fashion wear is actually considered like their royal raiment. <laughs> it's like their <laughs> official uniforms. Each each guy has his own uniform uh, and it's, it's fashion plate. But um, like that, that concept did not speak to me at all. Like I was like, I don't like any of these guys. I don't like this main character. This sounds stupid. I don't care. I want like cool people that I can control. Not Tetsuya Nomura's idea of cool. <laughs> <laughs> but as I've played, like they've really grown on me. And I mentioned in my combat preview that, you know, you start to unlock systems and the combat in the game is really heavily based around link attacks and teamwork. And you don't have all of that at the beginning. You have to earn it. You have to unlock it through the ascension grid, which is like the sphere grid, basically. Um, and as you gain these new abilities, your team member starts to start to work together more. And mm-hmm. it really does feel like you're like some guys who kind of got in over your head and are sort of learning to become a team as you go along. And it, it's really subtle and it really works. I've been really impressed by it. How is the, uh, the story by the way? Cause final fantasy 13, I could not follow a word of that thing. I mean, what, what I've seen of the story so far has been pretty straightforward. Uh-huh. There's um, like, I don't know a lot of a lot of it there's backstory that I clearly don't know but it seems like you're part of this sort of isolated kingdom that um is powered by magic crystals or something and there's an evil empire that um launches an attack and um yeah I don't know like it's it's kind of standard final fantasy fare um the whole like you're a prince going off to marry the princess from another kingdom is uh, is a bit more actually medieval than yeah. Final Fantasy has been lately, but at the same time, the game setting itself is not medieval. Like, uh, you know, the the magical kingdom full of crystals is basically Tokyo. I mean, it's skyscrapers, <laughs> super dense, super super developed, very modern. Uh, and then the the area outside of that is basically Route sixty six. So it's like dusty American desert with roadside diners. And uh, then there's like kind of some rocky areas you pass through and come out to a beach town. So it kind of reminds me in places of like the Canary Islands, but also like Arizona. So Mm -hmm. uh, it it clearly like they've taken inspiration from a lot of places. Um, 
So the setting is interesting, uh, even though the the plot is kind of medieval. But uh, yeah, I don't know. At, at the current point I'm at in the game, my mission is to basically go around to all these places and sort of claim Prince Noctis's lineage, like his royal heritage, because his father, spoiler, is dead. And um, so now he has to basically ascend to the throne and prove his worth. So, yeah, it's it's kind of, like I said, kind of medieval in that respect, but the setting is not medieval. Yeah, I this definitely... This combination of uh, aesthetics has been kind of a thing lately for Final yeah, Fantasy. They did in Final Fantasy thirteen as well. And I have to say that it it's kind of bothered me a little bit because it feels really jarring to go from, like, this kind of high-tech sci-fi slash medieval world to Route 66. Like, <laughs> it just doesn't really jive in my mind. Uh, well, does it bother as, you, as Jeremy? You... It, it seems kind of weird because, um, yeah, it is It is kind of uh, like a strange juxtaposition. But the city itself, um, Lucis, I think is the name of it, uh, basically the, the royal city, is isolated. Like that's kind of the point is that it's walled off. It's on an island. You can only get there by bridge or by flying. And the the area immediately outside of it where the game begins, the part that looks like Route 66, um, it's clearly become that way through war. Like as you get a little further away from the city, you come to areas where there's like ruins of tanks and airships and things like that that have cool. crashed and, and rotted over. Um, so, you know, like there's there's an entire area where you can't travel in that direction because there's a giant wall in the way. Like Donald Trump would be proud um, <laughs> because they actually did it. They built the wall. Topical. But yeah, right. Um, <laughs> but no, it seems very like it's it's a little jarring at first, but clearly this area um, and I totally blanked out on what the, the region is called, but it, it clearly is that way because of circumstances. And it's basically like, a, you know, a bombed out uh, wasteland that's been ravaged by wars. And uh. so I, I'm I feel like. The, the royal city is isolated and defended uh, because of that history. And basically it's like the last bastion against the encroachment of the empire. Yeah. Uh, one thing I kind of noticed when I played the first half hour is that uh, the people outside uh, don't really regard you with Noctis with any sort of uh, like, um, they don't really look up to him in any way. They kind of regard him as you say, a spoiled kid instead of an actual prince. Yeah, and it's, it's part clear of the that they, it's not like, oh, you're Grace. Uh, yeah. None of that. They're like, yeah. yeah, out here, you're just another kid. Yeah, like almost like resentment, almost. Mm-hmm. Getting back to the final, uh, the, the battle system, you can, you said that it was kind of a combination of Final Fantasy twelve and Final Fantasy thirteen, which I found pretty interesting. And then there's also like a combination of turn-based and active time elements as well. Um, well could you talk a little more about that? You can you can set it to be turn based if you if you set it to wait. So mm-hmm. like you know classic Final Fantasy, it has active and it has wait. Um, if you do wait, then it does become kind of turn based. Like if you take your hand off the left stick and don't move, then it will automatically go into sort of like a wait mode where um, there is sort of a timer on it, but it's a very lengthy timer. It's like you have twenty or thirty seconds to figure out what you want your next move to be. So um, 
it's definitely not a uh, like rush, rush, rush. Whereas you know the demos until now have felt very like frantic and and you're like, what the hell is going on? <laughs> um, but you do have the option to put it on wait mode, and it does feel a lot more like Final Fantasy. Like when you when you're more active, it's like an action RPG version of Final Fantasy 13, and that you're controlling one character, and you can order command or issue commands to your your other party members, but you're always like controlling that one character. In this this case, Noctis. Mm-hmm. Um, but when you have wait mode active and uh, you get those, like the the wait screen comes up, that's when it starts to feel like Final Fantasy XII because you get those lines, those arcing lines that go from one character to another, and it like basically shows you all your action options for a, a specific command. So that's where I'm getting these comparisons from. Um, which is not to say that it's you know menu based like those games are because it's not it's very much a um like you can set a a standard command like standard attack and um i don't know just like a bunch of different commands that are all real time but again you do have that wait option so it does feel a lot more like final fantasy than i expected and um you know the big the big kind of hooks for the combat system are uh, Noctis's ability to warp and to kind of phase out from attacks. Like if you just hold down the L1 button on the PS4 controller, um, Noctis will automatically evade any attacks that come his way. And it uses a little bit of magic power, so you can't do it infinitely in theory, but you can decrease the cost for those actions, so it does become effectively infinite. But you can't really do much attacking while you're you're in that defensive posture. So... You have to kind of balance that defensiveness with taking initiative and acting. And you have to kind of figure out the timing on enemy attacks so that you don't take collateral damage or take counterattacks. So there's um, there's some skill to it. And then, you know, you have the ability to lock onto an enemy and warp across the screen at it. And that will give you an, a, like a more powerful physical attack. Um, and if you hit enemies from behind or just, you know, perform different kinds of actions, you can, uh, unlock linking attacks. So say you hit an enemy from the blind side and you have uh, blindside linking unlocked, then you'll have a party member who will jump in and perform a follow-up attack. So it becomes like chaser commands basically, but it's all sort of automated and it's all sort of how you, based on how you customize your party. So it's um, yeah, combat was definitely the part of Final Fantasy fifteen I was most concerned about because it seemed really bad mm-hmm. based on the demos. But I feel like it's actually come together really well, and and with it coming out, turning out as well as, as to be as good as it has, like it makes me more confident about the rest of the game. It sounds like you're pretty like like pretty high on Final Fantasy fifteen in general. Like your your impressions have all been really positive. Yeah, I can't think of too much that I've seen so far that I don't like. Um, I mean, I you know I've spent a lot of time just kind of running aimlessly through the wilderness, <laughs> but that's been by my choice. I didn't have to do that. Um, like like I said, you know, people have played through the first five chapters in fifteen hours or so, so you don't have to take the slow uh, exploratory approach if you don't want to. You can rush through if you want. Uh, but there is a lot to do um, sort of in addition to the main story. There are a lot of hunts and side quests. Like 
hunts you can just go and get at a restaurant like the the people who are selling you burgers are also in charge of wilderness hunts it doesn't make any sense but whatever i guess I like there's that. no guilds on route 66 <laughs> yeah but then there are other there there are other quests that you can encounter in the wilderness that um are not given on the map you just have to bumble into them and they can be things like this dude's car broke down and he needs a repair kit so go fetch him a repair kit but there's other stuff too and you have to look for those things so there is there is value in exploration i really like the oh sorry cat i was gonna say i really like the idea of uh uh, quests being doled out from uh, burger joints because it's like uh, I'm I'm out of meat. Can you get me some imps? <laughs> Imp burgers. It's a total 180 from Final Fantasy 13. By the sounds which of it, was linear to the point of being a little too linear, I think, and uh, a lot or, of- or a lot too linear. <laughs> uh, like everybody always said that what. Once you got to the big open plane area, Final Fantasy thirteen, where you could where you were among like large monsters and you can just kind of tool around and open up a little bit, that Final Fantasy thirteen got a little more bearable. And it seems like they kind of took that lesson and it applied it writ large with Final Fantasy fifteen. Yeah, but that, that open area of thirteen was not it wasn't, it wasn't that good. impressive. You no, know, it was just like a big open space with a lot of monsters. It was like, hey, go kill this kind of monster. Oh, okay, sure, I'll do that. Uh, it was not. It was not the the promised land that we had been led to expect. <laughs> Whereas this is much more just kind of a like, hey, here's you know, here's kind of your quest objective. You can go there, but you don't have to. You can tool around. You can you know go hunting for resources or hunt monsters or just see what's out there. It's fine. Go for it. So before we wrap up, um, can you you have not posted your third part of your series yet. Um, can you kind of give us a little preview as to what you're going to be writing about it, since it'll probably be on the site by the time this podcast is up? Yeah, I mean, it was um, kind of what I was talking about earlier. Uh, that's that's kind of why what I led with was what's been on my mind to write next, um, you know, about how it does break from a lot of open world game design trends. And you you don't have fast travel and things like that. Like it's it's doing things its own way, and I feel like there is a purpose behind it. It really wants to reinforce the idea of like buddies on a road trip, and mm-hmm. I think I think taking fast travel out is a good idea. I mean, it, it's kind of annoying from a play perspective, but fast travel is one of those things that I actually I always hate using it. Yeah, I, I know what you mean. I play without fast travel for as long as I can. Like I went for a long time in Skyrim without ever using fast travel because I just feel like it cheapens the experience. Um, it becomes Definitely an immersion you know, breaker. Yeah, like it it threatens to turn a game into that Ubisoft checklist thing that we all hate so much. Um, and 15 doesn't want to be that. And so it really does force you to navigate the land and you know, spend time with your bros. And, you know, as you're driving around, there's always some chatter going on. Even as you're running around in the wilderness, like, you know, your your dudes in their leather jackets will be like, whoa, it's really hot here in the desert. <laughs> you can take it off, guys. Take off your leather jacket, dumbass. Never. I die um, first. It's a royal uniform. Can't take yeah, off the royal Yeah, come on, uniform. man. Although, actually, you know, you do have, you do have four, ward- four wardrobe options at the start of the game. You have your standard uniform, standard uniform without jacket, 
And then each character has his own casual outfit with or without a jacket. So you can actually switch right away into like a jeans and a t-shirt if you want. Um, so, so you do have that option, but yeah, it's, uh, <clears throat> like there, there's just a lot of kind of byplay between the characters and, uh, yeah, I, I think that's important to the game. Like, I, I really think it wants to sell you on the fact that, Hey, these are Noctis's friends. Like he really trusts them with his life and they're important. And, uh, you know, I've seen like a trailer for the game where they're arguing and, you know, I think the idea is for scenes like that to have more impact because like, wait, these are, these are Noctis's people and they're shouting at him. What's going on? So I'm, so far I'm okay with, with some of the, these, these sort of unconventional choices that the game makes. Uh, I do want to play some more of the game after this podcast is recorded. Um, so I can see if I can come up with more to say, maybe I can actually finish chapter two, who knows? Um, but it's definitely not a burden to play the game. It's more like I'm annoyed that I haven't had more time to play it. There's always something that comes up. Um, but I'm looking forward to the final game, even if it does mean I have to start over. It'd be really interesting to see if people are kind of feeling that Final Fantasy 15, like they, they see these choices as either kind of irritating and they're like, oh, this is not how you do things. This is all wrong. Or if they'll see it as fresh and original because... Uh, forgive me um it makes me think of how when dark souls came out several years ago that people were like i I don't understand that this this is not (laughs) how you do things right uh this is not this is not your typical action game it's like well okay well let's engage with it on its own merits um so and i think final fantasy 15 is going to be controversial regardless so i think so i think i think you know just going by conversations i've seen on forums it seems like um, it seems like there's the battle lines are drawn, and there are people who have already decided like they are just on board with whatever get this game does. They they have no reason to believe in it, but they do, and they you know have only seen what they've seen in trailers and previews, but they are super into it, super into the story, and they are willing to stand up for everything about it. Um, and you know I. I think it's been a while since Final Fantasy has had that. Indeed, I didn't really yeah. see a lot of that with 13. 13, it was like people were apologetic about liking it. But in this case, I think people really see something special. And so far, what I've played of it, like I think I think it bears that out. I think this is, believe it or not, I think Hajime Tabata has actually, like he and his team have, have managed to save this game which just at a minimum needed to come out even if it was garbage but (laughs) like i feel like it's much much better than that and yeah i'm i'm feeling more confident about the future of final fantasy as a matter of fact the thing that i'm least confident about with final fantasy's future is the seven remake like why Mm. why retread old ground like this is something new and different for the series and new and different for open world games and I'd like to see more of this, maybe less of the, um, you know, retreading of beloved game. But I'm sure, I'm sure the seven remake will pay the bills. So oh more God, power yes. To, more power <laughs> Dollar to... signs. I will be buying it like a sucker, and I don't care. But oh I'll be God, buying. Yes. I'll be having Final more Fantasy. More power to Kitase too. and his team. I agree. <laughs> and uh, I hate All to right, be. But... Oh, sorry. I was going to say I hate to use a cliche, but uh, Final Fantasy 15 kind of uh, strikes me as a game with a lot of heart. A lot of heart. A lot it of heart. might. It might be that. Yeah. Oh, we'll see how how it turns out um, 
Final Fantasy has a tendency maintaining has a has trouble uh, maintaining a narrative sometimes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So hopefully this will work out. Certainly they've had plenty of time to make it work. Yeah, just a few years, no big. We'll see. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Before we wrap up, um, really quickly, Jeremy, you are reviewing World of Final Fantasy. We talked a little bit about it on the pod last week because we played the demo. But are you enjoying it? Um, is it worth checking out for people who are like going, what the heck is this game? Yeah, it is. Like I said in the, the review in progress I started the other day, um, it's not the demo. Like the demo is basically the tutorial phase and doesn't really get into what makes the game work. I mean, yeah, you've got the cute little characters and the Final Fantasy nostalgia, but like there's a really good combat system here. It's weird, like stacking things on top of other things. <laughs> it's silly. But if you take away the silliness, it's actually kind of tactical and interesting. And uh, it has basically that sort of, uh, that same sort of like sphere grid growth system that you had for like Final Fantasy X or XIII-2 for each of your monsters, and they can evolve into other monsters. You have to capture them. It's very, like, it takes some cues from Pokemon for sure. Um, But you're not limited to, you know, just four moves per character. Um, You basically can turn each character, each each monster in your party into like a full-fledged combatant. And um, you can customize their skills and evolve them like i said into new monsters and uh, yeah i don't know like it there's a lot more depth to it than you'd expect it, it kind of seems like the modern final fantasy mystic quest <laughs> but it's there's a lot more going on than that so it's definitely the most surprising final fantasy game uh in quite a while which is saying a lot because i'm surprised by how well final fantasy 15 has turned out but this is surprising in a different way it's just like oh this is a substantial and pretty good RPG. Yeah, after the after Dissidia, the concept of a Final Fantasy mashup is no longer quite as special to me. But interestingly enough, I think the art style and the kind of the sense of humor gets me back on board. I think I would be a lot more out on this if it were like super serious. Mm-hmm, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, I don't think Final Fantasy does super serious very well. I mean, it, it still has the same like here are mysterious dudes in armor and masks and they have ominous things to say as they watch your heroes progress through the game. But it doesn't take itself that seriously. I mean, it can't with that art style. And this is ultimately like a turn-based RPG. It is the Final Fantasy mashup we've really wanted all these years. I remember, oh God, back in like when Final Fantasy VI was new, thinking, man, it'd be really cool to have like an RPG that combined the characters from 4, 5, and 6. That would be great. And it's only taken 20, <laughs> 22 years. Yeah, the fanfic writers had a bit of a are. jump on them. But it, it, it did happen. So this is not like an homage, like Bravely Default and Four, Hero of, Four Heroes of Light. It's not some other genre like Dissidia. It's actually a Final Fantasy mashup that is a Final Fantasy game. All right, Jeremy, we can find your review on the site as well as your Final Fantasy XV preview. Um, and, of course, if people want to hear you talking more about classic games, you're, there is Retronauts, which there is. is continuing still, to appear on the site. Still on US Gamer, despite Bob's defection. 
Yes, Bob is still still on the pod. We might even have Bob on Axe of the Blood God from time to time. He may make a triumphant return. But in any there'll case, be, is there anything else you want to promote, to Jeremy? Uh, no, that's pretty much been what I've been immersed in lately. Um, that and the NES Classic, which is kind of within Retronauts' purview. So, uh, yeah, that's it. Final Fantasy and, and NES games. That's pretty much it's my optimal autumn. <laughs> All right. Well, Final Fantasy 15 will be out in a month, and we will have you back on to go in depth on it when it comes out. Looking forward to it. You have put a lot to rest a lot of my fears about the game. I'm really excited to be playing it. I'm Me happy too. to be serving as Square Enix PR. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I'm here with legendary director Brian Fargo, who, like, we owe so much as RPG fans to Fargo's work. He has been working on RPGs going back to the mid-80s, um, including The Bard's Tale. He's been making games since he was in high school, which I find so impressive. Brian, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. And I also have Chris Keenan, who is the VP of Development over at InXile entertainment with brian and they are currently working on wasteland 3 which is the follow-up of course to wasteland 2 wasteland of course is the post-apocalyptic rpg that has great similarities to fallout Uh, everybody's really excited about wasteland 3 brian Uh, so one of the things that immediately jumps out at me is what you're doing with the multiplayer and the first thing i thought was that this was almost kind of the culmination of what they were promising about like Ultima Online back in the mid '90s? Um, I don't know if you remember that, but they were talking about stuff like, well, the dragon will come and then will eat the sheep, and you're going to have like, and it's going to set off like this, this entire chain reaction of quests, and it's going to have be this live and amazing world. And it it never quite worked out that way. What we actually ended up more with was more like World of Warcraft with its kind of its more kind of amusement park take on MMORPGs. But Wasteland 3 kind of feels like it's living up to that original promise. Uh, what are your thoughts on that? Well, that's an interesting analogy. Um, I think you're right in that what what we don't want to do is sort of instance-based uh, multiplayer. Uh, we, we hang our hat on telling really great stories and then at the same time letting people tell their own story by leaving it open. And we put a lot of content into games that we know people won't see, but you have that as a byproduct if you want a, a deep, consequential world. So we think there's just... There's, there's sort of virgin territory there to really explore that from a multiplayer perspective. So... What it isn't is where you know you have you have some skills that I don't, and we're just sort of solving uh, key and lock puzzles together, right? This is about telling a story and having you be able to open up content that I wouldn't have seen otherwise, or or putting you in a position where you you know where I benefit you, or if or 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 harm you, or grief you more than anything. Um, and then we sort of started thinking about it further which was that all right well let's say you know me and you were playing together and you go off one way and i go off another but instead i just go and uh, i i go to a map and i park it and i go eat dinner well i don't want to have to stop playing because you're eating dinner and the same time there's no difference to me whether you're eating dinner or you just went to sleep and so we want the world to continue on so to explore what can happen with the other person pushing that world i think is really fascinating and uh that's really kind of the impetus behind it 
but I think I think we felt with Wasteland too that some of the moments that that people really liked about that were when the world changed around them. You know, when there was a, a, a reactive element to it, when their choices actually mattered in there. And so we kind of started talking about how it's it's really feels like it's underrepresented in these narrative-based RPGs to have these uh, these these elements where the world's changing, but then you also are going through this with a friend as well. So there's there's a lot of interesting dynamics that we can play around with with you and a friend, and the, the social elements that would come from, you know, uh, uh, not only I go in and I modify the world based on my choices, but what if you do that ahead of me? And then I've got to deal with not only the way that I've changed it, but the way that you've changed it too. So it kind of throws some interesting uh, diversity into it. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, one thing that kind of I was trying to parse out. So if you decide that you don't want to play with a friend anymore, you can theoretically bail on that world and the choices reset. Is that correct? Uh, a less so reset. We're, we're going to save your world states at that moment. So, if if you if Kat, you and I are playing together and you're not a fan of the choices that I'm making or I'm too busy to be playing for a while and you just want to branch your game off, you can take it from the point that you're at and peel that into a single player experience. Ah, okay, that's pretty interesting. So yeah, that, that way there's no downside to it. You know, like I said, if, if you go to sleep and you wake up and I you know made you an enemy of the state and and uh, <laughs> I. I, I I didn't really want that world, you know, then you can say, okay, forget it. I'm going to just branch off. Yeah, I'm way too nice. I'm I'm always playing the good person, so I don't think I could necessarily deal with playing with somebody who's, like, going full evil. Right, right. Yeah, and, that's, and, and one thing that we're focusing on here, too, is this, this isn't going to be, like, a matchmaking system where it just puts a random person in the world with you. It's This is more about uh, uh, playing with a friend. So... Because we, we wanted to make sure that we took out that, that heavy griefing element. We want some amount of you being able to kind of mess with your friends and, and make choices that maybe they wouldn't have made. But, but we didn't want to deal with that whole, uh, it's some stranger who's just trying to ruin my experience. So what are some of the you know, unique challenges to making kind of a co-op game in an RPG context? Well, I, I think for me, it's going to be pulling off what, what we just talked about, which is that I can make meaningful changes in the environment uh, outside of your control and have it be interesting but not frustrating. Um, and, and because that, that's the whole thing. And, and like with Wasteland 2, we did an incredible amount of depth of, of, of small little things where you know, you, you'd walk into a scene with an NPC that you had in the beginning of the game that you kept for 40 hours, not even a very strong one, in fact, and that's one of the beauties of role-playing games. You'll, you'll keep a character in your party just because you like them, not because they're the most efficient or most powerful, uh, it, especially if we've done a good job with giving them a lot of personality. But so you, say you keep them in your party and you, you play for 40 hours and somebody says, oh, Scotch Mo, I haven't seen you in years. And you're sitting there thinking, well, how did they know I was going to have Scotchmall in my party? Well, the answer is we didn't, but we, we allocated for it. And that's what makes a good RPG so great. It's the payoff of those little nuances. And so we just have to extrapolate that into multiplayer and pay off those, those same things. Yeah, well, when we make a, we made a commitment early on in Wasteland 2, and it was kind of a tough commitment to make, that we're, we were going to design a lot of stuff that players weren't going to see. And... Because of that, we, we feel like that makes the world a lot more believable. Um, if 
if there's things that because of my decisions I'm shutting off zones and and now there's a couple hours worth of gameplay it's it's a hard ask as a development team because that stuff gets in the hundreds of thousands of dollars right so you know that we are doing all this work and it takes man months of time to get this stuff done and potentially a lot of people aren't going to see it but then there's I think a lot of people appreciate that because it again it makes the world feel really believable yeah, I, I think in ter- I think that's where immersion comes in, which is you know if you try something that's sort of unique or off the beaten path and it pays off, and you do that again and it pays off, and you do that again and it pays off, that only has to happen a few times where you're just in that world at that point. And of course, the inverse is true too, which is that you try some things and and, and they don't pay off, they don't pay off, they don't pay off, then the world starts to feel very thin. Brian, a, a hallmark of your kind of RPGs is. And you've seen this in the original Fallout, you've seen this in Wasteland 2 and that kind of thing, is that your choices, like, you seem to really like having a non-violent way to get out of a situation. Like, one of the more famous examples is being able to convince a final boss to kill themselves, which is uh, just one of the more phenomenal endings I've ever seen in an RPG. Like, do you see, like, this as, like, an essential component to a good RPG to be able to have as like to have these kind of meaningful choices and options as much as having a combat. Yeah, I think it gets back to to all the same things about reactivity and allowing you to play it the way you'd like to play it. So whether you want to sneak or kill or talk your way out, you want to have those different options, and it can it can come down to uh, you know even with Wasteland One, I have a door. I could uh, I could pick the lock, or I could you know, I could throw dynamite at it. And <laughs> so you, you know you, you get your sense of playing it in the style that you want to, and uh, and an, an adjunct onto that, of course, is that people, our players, love to be able to play in any order they want to, also as much as we can. So we have to provide that so they can wander around the main map, and if they want to go into areas that um, oh, sorry, we'll close the door here. Our air conditioning broken, so it's hotter than Hades in here. Uh, is uh, that we allow people to wander around and uh, go into areas that, that might not be good for them, but if they want to go in early and try to take it on and get out of there with a with a plasma rifle, then have at it. And you know, if you want to grind out for eight hours on a level you shouldn't be, that's okay as long as you're having fun. It makes it kind of infinitely more complicated, though, right? Um, in terms of the quest design and everything. Is that why you think maybe a lot of developers have kind of shied away from that and gone much more heavy on develop uh, on combat? It, yeah, that, it's it's a really hard game to build. Um, there's there's so many ways to break it, and as soon as you get into branching dialogues that have you know eight different outstates, and there's four nodes along each quest, and you can potentially have other quests that intersect with it, and we, we made the decision, you know, a lot of players were asking us to, to bring back the idea of being able to kill anybody in the world at any time. And, I mean, think about if you start a main quest, and then you can turn around and kill that, that quest giver, how are we supposed to make sure that we keep that world from falling apart and, and losing that? So these are all considerations that we have to keep in mind building it. And so it definitely gets incredibly complex. And, you know, going back to what I was saying earlier, you spend a huge amount of time on on branches that that again people won't see uh, they're definitely the most complex games to build i mean i've been involved with a lot of different genres from you know you mentioned star trek as an adventure game but 
RPGs are like a decathlon. You have to be good in so many different events. And uh, and just in the depth of these, one of the things that people find surprising is that when we do these games, there's no one person that knows every single thing in the game. I don't care who you lead designer, lead writer. I don't care because we, when we put these teams together, we, we sort of teach them how to think. And then it becomes, it, it takes on a life of its own and it becomes bigger than any one person ever could. So I think that, that, that tells you a lot for the sort of the difficulty of managing the process. I, I think that also helps make the game even better too, because it gives a lot of the team members uh, a good amount of ownership over the game. We're not necessarily just handing them a design document saying, put exactly this and only this in. They get to infuse a ton of their personality in there uh, as they're building out these branches and trying to make sure that, because we're never going to be able ahead of time on paper, come up with all examples of ways that people are going to try to play through these different areas. So we try to catch as many of those uh, those areas in, in front as we can, but then it's a huge amount of iteration. So we, we have to get it in the game and playable early, and then we start going, okay, well, what if I talk to this guy first instead of this other person? Or what if I decide that I'm going to you know move off into another area and leave this one hanging? So there's, there's a bunch of considerations to make. One of the the kind of the key features of Wasteland and Wasteland 2 has always been the, the ranger base. And one thing that jumped out at me in Wasteland 2 was that the ranger base, like the ranger citadel was like pretty amazing, but it also, it, it, it didn't feel like super well populated with rangers. Uh, is this something that you're kind of hoping to address with Wasteland 3's uh, approach to the ranger base? We're dialing that up in a couple different ways, and I know Chris is very passionate about this one, so I'm going to let him speak to this. Yeah, so so the the base has been core to the Wasteland uh, since the original one, um, and and one of the things that we wanted to do here with with the Ranger base is it's it's not about settlement building and placing objects where you want, and it's not a, a, a RTS where I'm sending guys off to collect wood and, and building that up. It's it's very much story driven. And so we want it to feel, you're going to start off in an area where there's not much of a ranger base, actually. And, and you're, you're going to kind of have to make that your thing. And so as you build that up, you're going to be presented with different story beats and things that happen. And, and some of those are going to be based on your choices in the world. If I go out and I decide that I'm going to make a decision in a town that because of the choice I've made, it creates a large amount of refugees. They might make their way to ranger, your ranger base, and now I've got some decisions to make on how I'm going to react to these additional 20 people uh, that have came in there. Am I going to uh, uh, house them? Am I going to kick them back out into the world to deal with it? And so we, we almost, you know, we keep talking about how, you know, in, in RPGs, people love building their characters, creating their personalities, creating, you know, building up their attributes and their, their skills and, and kind of defining it their way. And we want to share some of those elements in the ranger base, but narratively driven. Sounds really exciting. Um, Apart from the ranger base, like one of the things that kind of struck me about Wasteland 2 was that it was a huge RPG, but certain things didn't make it in, like the the crab cars, which were crabs (laughs) using cars as like hermit shells because they were giant crabs. what other kind of things didn't make it into Wasteland 2 that you want to make sure make it into Wasteland 3 this time around? 
Well, there, there, I mean, there, there is the, the Ronald Reagan cult, which I think was something that, that, that we <laughs> really like. We like the Gippers and, you know, with the, the Bonzo the Clown. And, you know, I, I love the idea of cults. I, I, the cults were kind of my one of my favorite parts about Wasteland, too. And, uh, you know, you know, I, I don't know how much you played it, but if you heard the, the children's choir singing and, you know, I, I loved uh, the concept of people taking history and whitewashing it and making it sweet and innocent when it actually was brutal and violent. Uh, I, that was what that was what the uh, that cult was really hitting on. So I do know the Gippers is something we wanted to get with Wasteland Three. Certainly, everything we got in the director's cut, uh, we would want to. We're going to take over plus adding to that. I think the uh, the perks, the perks, and, perks yeah. and quirks was something that especially Fallout players really liked, and we just weren't able to get to that uh, on on release, and, and we did get it in the director's cut and of course we gave it to everyone for free um we'll you know we'll be we'll be playing that up in wasteland 3 yeah vehicles is another thing we we had originally started playing around a little bit with vehicles not to the extent that we're talking about for wasteland 3 uh and it just it just wasn't feeling quite right in wasteland 2 so we scrapped it at that point but the idea stayed alive uh to discuss it for this new project senior senior oh yeah the uh, yeah. visible armor was another thing mm. that was it, it was kind of, we had a clothing system in-game, and uh, uh, but we didn't really go full full out as far as, like, you would get new armor pieces and build those out on top of your character. And that's a, that's another element that's really interesting to see as your character grows, you know, that, that visual progress as well as stats and numbers changing. So Wasteland 3, um, looking back on Wasteland 2, like, what did you kind of learn from that experience that you want to apply to Wasteland 3? Well, I, well, I'll say one thing that we have an advantage in Wasteland Three is that we were very much finding our way through the wilderness on Wasteland Two. Mm. In terms of, you know, we had to bridge the gap between Wasteland One and Two, and you know, however many twenty-two decades that was. There were certain expectations for conversation, you know, using keyword and and you know, how do we handle squad-based uh, gameplay. And how would the skills work? There was a lot of questions. A lot of things did not automatically come across because it's very different when you're top-down looking at an icon versus uh, sort of the isometric. So we had to solve a lot of things. Uh, and and uh, it's always after the fact, you're like, oh, of course, that was obvious, right? But but, it, <laughs> but it's painful to finally get to some conclusions. Uh, little things like showing the keyword and, 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 and then telegraphing what the player was going to say. That was not built from the beginning, but people complained. Uh, internally, they complained. So, uh, or maybe that was an early access. Doesn't matter. Um, so, we're able to, to to now build upon something that works. So we're not starting from scratch, which means we can do more nuance and more touches. So, so that, I don't know that doesn't exactly answer your question, but but we do get this sort of huge head start. I mean, and that's not even counting the code itself. Yeah, and also uh, for. I'm sorry. Other, but other lessons is just more, more, more openness, more reactivity, more, 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 more. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, four years ago, also, um, you were one of the the first Kickstarters uh, to come out with Wasteland, and you must have learned a lot about that process as well. Oh, about the crowdfunding process in general. Yeah, uh, yeah I, I think we, I think we've, we've, we, we know it just about as as well as you can. Uh, every campaign has had very unique challenges, so we, we never ever rest thinking we've got it wired because there's uh, everyone is different. 
and 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 this of course this in particular we switched from Kickstarter over to Fig, and so you know that had its own unique uh, um, uh, challenges. I think yeah, I think one thing that that's definitely solidified in our minds as far as uh, crowdfunding goes is you you really have to think about it as if it's as big as a game's launch, even though the game hasn't even started yet. So you got to be prepared with you know all of the normal marketing materials that go out. You have to have a good enough understanding of of the type of game you have to have a an interesting campaign thought out and prepared ahead of time and i think one thing that we have done is every campaign we continue to add more time ahead that that we start planning for it and and really focusing on each one one thing that i'm kind of wondering so wasteland 2 obviously a turn-based uh, kind of tactical combat uh really kind of the a venerable combat system and and this has been a thing in a lot of RPGs, and I, I'm kind of wondering if if you feel like this combat just never ages. Like, like what about what about this combat keeps it from aging? Like, why? How has it managed to kind of be a foundation for a modern RPG after like 30 years? Well, well, I, I like to, I think that that thinking never goes away. And, and 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 what it's doing is it's requiring you to to, to take a look at situations and, and apply different tactics to each one and people find that endlessly stimulating i mean that's from from chess down to hearthstone uh you know you're always using your brain so i think that 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 is a uh, a big component of what makes it interesting um uh i don't know chris what would you want to add to that yeah i guess uh with with a turn-based combat system, it, it, when we don't have to worry about uh, exact timings and twitch-based mechanics, it allows us to play more with, you know, the the skills, any sort of abilities and skills available to the player, all of their various options that they'd have at any one given point, and how their different characters in our party-based system, how what. The, you know which character is strong at what element, and how you're going to use those guys together. And you know, Brian mentioned chess, and I love playing chess, and that, I, I see a lot of similarities between those two. There's uh, uh, how you can. In addition, we get things like how you use the environment uh, to your benefit as well. So it's less about kind of a timing-based approach and more of a thinking approach. It's like chess, but you get to make the other pawns' heads explode. <laughs> And Brian, it's been almost 30 years, and I don't want to freak you out, but it's been almost 30 years since the original Wasteland. I'm kind of wondering, like, how have you grown and changed as a, a designer and a director and a writer since then? I'm a cynical bastard now. <laughs> <laughs> well, it fits in perfectly with the post-apocalyptic landscape, yeah. right? You know, I, uh, I don't know there was a similar question, which was that, well, I've had a lot more life experiences since I did the first Wasteland, and... Wasteland 2 is certainly much different having released in 2015 than it would have been if it was in, 19, in, in the year you know, 1990 or whenever it would have come out. So, um, I, you know, I, I think having, you know, uh, been married and had kids and, and gone to kids recitals and, you know, had all the ups and downs of lives, you get, you, you get a, a life, you get a, a different perspective on things. And so I'm able to I think bring some of my real world real world attitudes towards some of this. The original Wasteland like had a lot of ideas that still really resonate today, which um among them like a big one was definitely its kind of persistent world. Um 
how do you feel about the fact that you're kind of like pioneering these ideas that have managed to last for so long? Oh, I'm, I'm not sure how to answer that one, but, uh, you know, the, 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 it was early on, you know, we were just kind of doing what felt right. So it's kind of fun now mm-hmm. to look back and see where we were breaking new ground, but not even thinking about it. Uh, and now we can kind of philosophize on it and figure out what genres you know are now. And I, me- I remember when I did my first game, it was like a stupid little feature, but like I did a, a, an adventure game uh, when I was in high school. And this is like a dumb feature I think I invented, but I don't think I'll, it'll ever come up. But when you when you played the Sierra games and you saved game, it didn't tell you what your last save game was. You didn't know it was one through nine. So you're like, fuck, which one did I load? You have to write it down. <laughs> so I put the feature that would told you what was your last save game, right? This is a stupid little thing, right? You know, and then, right? It's just like, so, I mean, that's kind of a small version of that. So, you know, I've just sort of been at the beginning experimenting and, and doing what feels right. Um, when it comes to your time back kind of developing games in the, the 1980s, like, did it, it must have felt like the sky was the limit, right? Even though, like, the technology was kind of limited for that time. Like, it, there was so much ground to explore. Yeah, there was always something new on the horizon. I mean, I mean, look, we, we, the original Wasteland 2, or Wasteland, I mean, you'll remember it had the paragraph books, the offline stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, and people thought that was for copy protection, but that was because we ran out of disk space for text. <laughs> so, so, so I mean, that, that that's how limiting it was. But there was always, uh, you know, another faster computer along the way, or, or or disks that held twice as much. And then we went to CD, and then DVD, and then there was the internet. So it, there's always something on the horizon that that makes it interesting and kind of propels you forward. It, it feels like it's simultaneous. It is. You can do so much, and then you're always so limited by the tech. And I think it will always feel that way. We we, we want to push it a little bit further than we're able to, but much further than we did five years ago. Yeah, we'd be limited by disk space back then, and now we're limited by money and time. Uh, in a weird way, it's almost like uh, kind of like this burden because the sky truly is the limit in order to what you accomplish. You can accomplish, but in terms of the budgets, the budgets have gotten so huge now that it's almost like uh, it's it's just an entirely different challenge, I must imagine, especially in the RPG space where you're creating these games that are like more than 100 hours long. Well, and, and I also think that, you know, if you go back to the, to the 90s, that, that visually we were all sort of on par. But now when you look at the battlefields and the, red, the Dead Redemptions, they're on a whole other level with their $100 million budget. So... We have to compete, but we're not going to be visually on par with those guys. It's funny, like, looking back on the RPGs of the 1980s, and, I mean, so many of them, including the Bard's Tale, were based on D&D, right? Or Tunnels and Trolls, in the case of Wasteland. And, like, these tabletop games have just been a foundational part of, uh, of the genre. Like, the... And in some ways, is is it fair to say that, well, how do you feel about the fact that they remain a foundational part? Is it a case of the genre not really growing beyond these aspects? Um, or is it just that they're so timeless that it's always going to be in some way or another a big part of the genre? Do you mean the original board games or like the ones coming out now? So the, the, like the original, like D and D, the kind of the D and D that was influencing these RPGs from the eighties to one extent or another, still influencing RPGs today. Yeah, well, I mean, 
they've been around for a while, but not in the grand scheme of things. They haven't been around for a long time, and we all grew up with this stuff. So they all they all speak to a language that we understand. You know, with the vernacular of you know mana or, or hit points or you know constitution and attributes and all these different things. So um, it doesn't surprise me at all. I mean, I think in many ways that the, the PC RPG still take us back to a time and place when we were young and innocent and playing board games. <laughs> I think a, a lot of those systems too are, are you know, if you look at the core pillars, they're pretty synonymous with what people would generally describe as an RPG. And you look at like like the exploration elements, creating an interesting story, and just like the base element of I'm role playing somebody that's not me, and I'm I'm building up my characters and putting points into various things and kind of doing it my way. Those those all feel like pretty core concepts to a lot of RPGs, and and you saw a lot of those in you know D and D. Uh, so of course you're like extremely well known also for your work at Interplay and kind of one of the golden RPGs or golden eras of CRPGs on the PC. Uh, what was it like to be? To, what was it like at Interplay back in those days, wo- working on those kinds of RPGs? Well, I was 15 years old at the time. Oh, you were talking about Brian. <laughs> <laughs> I actually did a real quick. I worked at Interplay. It's my first job ever. I was in quality assurance at 15. Wow, cool. Kind of so I've been working for Brian for, for many, many years. Sorry, I just had to hijack that part. Yeah, no, no. Well, like I said, I mean, you know, we were. It, 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 what's really fun for me now is that, you know, I'll read articles where they'll talk about history, and I'll just think, oh, we were just a bunch of kids doing our thing, you know, and now as it gets written about in kind of the annals of, of, of the history of computer games and, and what's been done, I, I, you know, it's obviously very rewarding. But, you know, people, Interplay was a great, just a great environment. I mean, still, you know, you'll you'll, you'll hear people today that used to work there and that have been in the business and, you know, know, they've been out of there for 15 to 20 years and they'll still say it's the the golden days and it was the most fun they've ever had at a job before or since. And so we just had a really positive attitude about all trying to do something that was unique and, and we were all very very passionate about what we were doing the company was not run by an accountant uh, or a wall street person it was run by me who was focused on the product and making sure that the, the profits you know if we did good stuff that we thought the profits would follow thereafter well as somebody who's been making games since the 80s do you ever get the sense that in a weird way we've kind of returned to the beginning in the sense that uh, independent developers, like these two-person teams, are having incredible success making these uh, kind of these amazing games. Well, I think I think in some ways, uh, I mean, there's there's some of it's full circle for sure. Where you know, we, we in the beginning, it was like, how, how do we make like for us specifically, you know, how do we make these games that are not that, that, that could be done by more than two people, but yet still make a, a living out of it. So early on when we were doing Bard Cell and Wasteland, we weren't making very much money because we wanted to be more than two people. And so ironically, here we are years later, and you know, we're not doing AAA, but we're also not two people. So how do we make, make money doing this, which is why crowdfunding was such an important part of it. Um, so... In, in that way, we've come full circle. There are some big differences. Discoverability is is the biggest thing that's different now, and that is the hardest, hardest thing for for, for developers to to stick out. So so it there is 
easy to build stuff, but hard hard to be discovered. Uh, but the good news is there, there are more opportunities now for financing and for viability than there ever has been before. You go back 10 years ago, and you were a young indie developer, you could probably do a Flash game, and that was about it. And, and now you could go work on some VR, there's financing there, there's crowdfunding, uh, publishers will try digital deals, there's new entrants into the space, there's mobile, there's international, there's a lot of different opportunities that were never there before. So it, it is far better than it has been. Speaking of 10 years ago, like 10 years ago, I mean, it's fair to say that Wasteland 2 couldn't have been made the way that it ended up being made, right? Just in the sense of being an isometric RPG, like that was considered kind of an outdated approach to RPGs and graphics in general. Everybody was demanding the the top of the top, the AAA, the best graphics, the most 3D graphics, that kind of thing. Um, and now we're at a point where you can, in fact, make these games. It, does it kind of feel like, do you feel like you've kind of returned to your happy place where it's like, okay... We, I can make this like isometric RPG. I feel comfortable doing this. This is great. Uh, well, I think m more than specific to an isometric RPG, I'm at a happy place because I'm making the kind of games I want in the way that I want. I think that's the most important thing. When you're doing work for other people uh, and they're paying 100% of the bills, they might dictate exactly how you should put it together. And uh, and that can be difficult because I'm like any creative person. I have my own way, and you know, and my way is different than somebody else's way. So, I There's mean, I've... my madness, <laughs> <laughs> but it may appear as madness. So obviously, I mean, the elephant in the room is that Fallout still exists, and it is a gigantic AAA series. Fallout Four came out just last year. Uh, do yep. you ever feel like you're kind of fighting to keep Wasteland from falling kind of under the shadow of Fallout? Well, there's no doubt we're, you know, competing against the only the one thing we helped create. There, there, there's no doubt about that. But you know, I, I think there's a great opportunity with what we're doing with Wasteland because, you know, my, my, I think that as I look at the where Fallout's gone, it, it's gone a slightly different direction in terms of more monster-oriented and 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 uh you know building the bases and things like that whereas we're more like the road or canticle for Leibowitz or swan song and exploring the darker side of mankind in an rpg you know in a very deep and reactive rpg so i, I think there's a great opportunity for us yeah, i think i think we also you know heavily embrace the rpg systems and and that core and it uh and I had fun with the latest Fallout 4, certainly, um, but it is more action-oriented. You know, they, even from New Vegas or Fallout 3 to Fallout 4, you saw a pretty heavy change in the skill system and, and kind of character progressions and all that stuff. So are there? So you obviously have a, a long line of games that you've worked on over the past, like, 30 years or so. Uh, are there any other kind of uh, old properties that you would like to bring back? I mean, you obviously also brought back uh, Torment, uh, the Torment series with Torment Ties of Numenera. Yeah. You know, I, I think at, at this point, uh, once we do more of this, I'd like to start looking at doing some new stuff. Hmm. Uh, um, you know, we, we definitely have ideas for sort of new ways to do role-playing games and, and, and some interesting twists. So, um Probably more focused on that than trying to bring back another one. I mean, I think we're, we're working on Bard Cell Torment and Wasteland. That feels that feels good. I think, you know, at some point it's it's time to innovate again. You know, you look at like Pixar, right? They kind of rotate in a new thing with an old thing, and I'd like I'd like to see us do more of that. 
what do you see as kind of the way forward for RPGs? Is is this kind of online uh, cooperative aspect maybe like the next big innovation for the RPG genre? I, I think it could be. I mean, you look at you look at uh, most of the products that sell well these days are something that I mean, their multiplayer is almost always the component, um, and and they're also it makes them very watchable on on, on Twitch and you know all the streaming um, worlds. Uh, it makes it more interesting from a promotional standpoint. So for for both for marketing, but that aside, just from a pure gameplay perspective, I think there's a lot to be. Uh, to be explored there. I, I mean, we're really, we're really on the, on the, on just the starting, you know, starting line of it. It's nobody's really done a lot with it. I, I'm put, and I'm putting MMOs in a separate category, right? Because obviously a lot's been done there, but in terms of narrative multiplayer RPGs, I think us and, and Larian are just, just getting going. Yeah. It just occurred to me that when we think of RPGs as kind of a solitary experience, like the kind of games that we would hunker down and, do a nice long dungeon crawl but i mean if you think back to the very dawn of the genre with tabletop rpgs i mean i mean you would play with four of your friends right with uh doing a kind of a cooperative thing like discussing how you're going to approach each like challenge each person role-playing a a different character so in in a way we've gone all the way back to that that's a great analogy uh, you're right, right? We, we we always have friends we played with. So as long as we're not disturbing the single-player narrative, like I said, it's all a plus. I mean, maybe what you'll do is play the entire game start to finish by yourself and then grab a friend and say, let's play it together and see how the, the, the see it goes. And, and, you know, and, and then when you start unlocking things you never got to see as a single-player, I think you'll love it. Do you see Wasteland 3 kind of um, putting a bow on the Wasteland series, or do you want to just keep going with it? I never would. I'm not going to put a bow on any series. Are you kidding? Because <laughs> when we, when I work on a game, all I see is what's wrong with it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's always all when we ship. It's like, ah, I wish we could have done this, this, and that. Yeah, there's there. It, it doesn't much matter how much time you get in development. You're always going to find things that that you dislike about it, or that you wish you could have done differently, or that you wish you could add to it. And so, I think I think it's one of those elements that. We're, we're always going to finish a game and have 20 ideas that we were dying to add in, and we save those for the next version. So, All right. Well, congratulations on being fully funded so quickly. Uh, that's quite an impressive accomplishment, especially in this day and age. It uh, shows that you have a dedicated and very excited audience. Um, when can we expect Wasteland 3? Well, we, we put down a 36-month dev cycle on it, and uh, we're, you know, we'd love to beat that, but we're not going to guarantee it. We try to be as cautious as possible these days. Um, you know, it's always tricky, uh, the crowdfunding, because you have to put a, a time for when it's going to come out before you start, and, and, and in the publishing world, you would never do that, right? You, you wouldn't give a date until you were probably at alpha, so um, we're sort of forced to put it out ahead of time, so we put a three-year time horizon on it. All right. And of course, Torment Tides of Numenera, which is also from In Exile Entertainment, coming next year? Uh, yeah, we're, we're, we're wrapping it up now. Man, between Torment and Wasteland 3 and Pillars of Eternity, it's, uh, it's a great time to be around for people who like those kinds of RPGs. <laughs> Indeed. The Dark Ages are over. All right, Brian. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Really appreciate it. And to both of you, uh, good luck. Good. We, Thank you. We appreciate it. Thank you. 
that's the end of our episode. Axe the Blood God is the US Gamer Podcast. You can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, uh, iHeartRadio, anywhere that podcasts can be downloaded. Uh, check us out on social media. Um, I, of course, am on Twitter at the underscore catbot. Nadia is on Twitter at, at Nadia Oxford. And Jeremy is on Twitter at GameSpite. We have a lot of RPG-related articles on the site. Uh, there was a Monster Hunter announcement, which uh, we didn't get a chance to talk about, but it's kind of interesting that Monster Hunter is returning to the Nintendo 3DS instead of the Nintendo Switch. I would have expected Capcom to jump on that train relatively quickly, but I guess they're going to milk the 3DS as much as possible. There is also the Ashes of Ariandel, which is the Dark Souls 3 DLC review, which I reviewed. I gave it a 4 out of 5. I thought that it was pretty good, but it was retreading um, a little too on familiar territory for my tastes. And also, uh, it's a little short. It's only like 3 or 4 hours. Um, I was able to knock it out pretty quickly, though the final boss is really freaking hard. Um, it has some nice PvP options as well, which is pretty cool. So go check out that in addition to our World of Final Fantasy and Final Fantasy XV coverage. In the meantime, um, thanks to Jeremy and Nadia for coming on the show. We'll be back next week, as always. And until next time, I've been Kat Bailey. Happy adventuring. Happy adventuring.